two most important skills you can have in the current decade and beyond will be communications and the art of storytelling. So let's discuss storytelling and pitching first. People find it challenging to own their own personal narrative. It's true. And that's what makes, at times, people bad at pitching. So, for example, when I'm in a room in social audio, or sometimes with a, a business situation, I like to explain and give uh, an overview of who Johnny Nash is. So I'll say something on the lines of, my name's Johnny Nash, I left the Iran-Iraq war, I came to the UK, couldn't speak a word of English, suffered from an eye defect. And that eye defect was debilitating. Because when I was younger, I never, ever wanted to put myself front and centre. never even wanted to put my hand. It was a terrible weakness, that inability to socialise. But guess what? That weakness turned into my superpower, my ability to read people's body language, their verbals and their non-verbals, which I've carried now for the last quarter of a century for 25 years in the world of recruitment and careers. So it gets people to understand my background, maybe some of my adversity, and turning a weakness into a strength and what my superpower is, okay? Because we have a finite amount of time and we've got to frame our story and own our own personal narrative. Before I go further, Dr. Roshanak, why are people so bad at pitching? Start with the easy questions, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Johnny, for the invitation. Why are people so bad at pitching? Well, I think what it comes down to is confidence and understanding. So the more comfortable and, and confident we are, and this goes to the understanding part of our environment and the expectations of us, the more we're able to fully fill out that landscape. Having said that, we ourselves, within our own confidence internally, depending upon how much confidence we have about ourselves and how we'll be received and how we will do if we are not well received, is going to determine how brave we'll be with respect to being more forward and more explorative in what we will explain. So typically when you want to pitch, you're pitching something new. It's a novel idea, a novel concept. And so that's quite dangerous with respect to how the brain loves to have predictability, but also likes novelty as to how well that will be received. Because new things are something that is changing and unpredictable and often will be met with some resistance. And that level of resistance will determine how those people to whom we are pitching will respond to us. And of course, there's the idea of how important this is that they'll accept my pitch. I mean, you're looking for money, for example, and without that money, you may not be able to go forward. So there's all these different variables that will be the constraining factors on how you will express yourself. So you can think of it as a physical body with constraining factors. You could think of the variables that are constraining factors. In every way, shape, and form, the more comfortable we are, the more comfortable we are that we will be okay, the more confident we'll be to more appropriately express what it is that we want to pitch, including its novelty. In the case where we're not confident, what actually might be a benefit of that novelty might be hidden because we're afraid it won't be well received because it's so unusual.
or maybe it won't be understood well. And then maybe I'll start to bring that up a little bit later on instead of highlighting it if I'm really confident. Hey, as a matter of fact, I think this is the greatest part of this. And then that confidence also allows us, you know, it's like beauty's in the eye of the beholder to see it in its full beauty and therefore to be able to express that so well. So it all comes back down to how will I be after this pitch is done? Johnny? Well, you can tell Dr. Roshanak is a very effective communicator and uh, and a good pitcher because I love the way you just framed all of that in, in such an articulate fashion because it's true, a lot of the points that you raised. And unfortunately, fear, fear is one of the worst things you can have in your life. It really is. It makes you a shadow of the person you could be. And, and people just live a life of fear. And pitching is one of them because they is the, is the uncertain element of getting out of your comfort zone in a situation where you build up in your head. And sometimes when we build things too much in our head, we talk ourselves out of it. And we make it like Mount Everest. And we overcomplicate. We overcomplicate. I, I love those points. So... The top nine most important skills that companies have outlined in the world of business, according to polls, is nine, personable. Dr. Roshanak's personable. If I haven't mentioned, personable is so important because it's something called chemistry. When you're in an interview scenario, there's chemistry with two parties sizing each other up. When you're in a collaboration, there's chemistry. When you're forging a new business relationship, there's chemistry. Number eight is adaptability. Too many people are rigid and concrete. When it comes to goal setting, it's really important to have adaptability built in. We live in such uncertain times. And if the pandemic hasn't taught us that, I don't know what will. Number seven is creativity. That ability to solve problems in a creative fashion. And too many people lock horns in a situation, especially when it comes to negotiation, too intransigent. In my world, when I'm doing a negotiation, for example, there's something called artistic license. We try to bridge the gap. You show creativity. Very important skill. Social skills, number six. Sometimes in the pandemic, we might have forgotten some of them because we're all cocooned in our little burrows. We've now all come out. We've discovered the world, partying even. So that's really important. Number five is critical thinking, right? Punctuality is a, is a skill. People think, what? Being on time, you'll be amazed how many people aren't on time, right? Number three is teamwork. Number two is organization. But the number one skill, according to polls in the world of business, is communications. What do you think about that? Communications coming number one when it comes to the world of business, Dr. Roshanak. Well, it makes perfect sense because it doesn't matter how personable, likable, adaptable, creative, or anything else that you are if you can't communicate well because you will be misunderstood. And people, speaking of storytelling, will make up their own narrative. If you are not clear and articulate in what you are expressing, then you leave room for the other person and their imagination to fill in the blanks. And we all have our own filters. We all have our own own biases, our own unconscious and conscious biases, the way that we are feeling in that moment is another factor that's going to help us to decide how we want to interpret someone's behavior or whatever it is that they've communicated. Communication is so important because within communication and, and in this very club last year, 
Dr. Natalie Martinick and Ekabumi Ellick and I actually did a two-part series on communication that took, I think, something like seven or eight hours altogether and had thousands of people come and listen. And we talked about all the different aspects because, because communication is just let me open my mouth and figure out what you need to hear. There's a whole lot more involved. There's the person-to-person, there's the organizational, there's all these filters. There are different ways in which people interpret what is being said. So in the Western world, the onus is on the writer when they're communicating in written form. And that's also part of communication, right? Written, oral, body language. And the way that I write is meant to be clear enough for anybody to understand. That's the Western way of doing it. In Eastern understanding, the understanding of what is written is incumbent on the reader, not on the writer. So this is a huge difference. And these differences alone in understanding them is important to our communication style. How will we communicate effectively based on our audience? Am I writing for a more Western or a more Eastern audience? That's the difference between explicitly explaining something, giving all the features of a scene and all the relevant details, like I'm at the beach, it's sunny, there's a nice breeze, my toes are hot in the sand. The more details I give you, the more features I abstract from the scene, the more I'm sort of approximating, putting you, cropping you into that picture. On the other hand, there's communication through parables and through stories that give people that feeling of what it feels like, what I'm feeling on that hot summer day when I'm there. So there's quite a lot to be discussed when we're talking about communication. And if, as a company, you want to reach your goals, people need to come as better communicators. And communication is about a sense of communion. It's a coming together, as I mentioned in the Western and Eastern way of approaching this, of bringing someone to where you are, going to where they are, or finding that place that we go to together. That is the basis of the root word communication is communion. Johnny? Such good points. Let's communicate. Tell your friends. Tell, tell social media. This is a really important conversation. We're talking about how each of us every day lives with other people in our personal and our professional lives. It is very powerful to understand storytelling and communication because it's the very basis of how we interact with each other. And good communication skills enable managers to receive and send negative or heavy messages, right? Without creating frustration and a disruption of trust. And that's really important to keep employees motivated and engaged. When people don't feel like their managers or leaders are actually communicating messages, they get frustrated then starts the breakdown of trust. And without trust, you don't have anything, okay? You view everything with suspicion. And what is happening is that people and companies are looking at leaders to communicate regularly their roles and goals. They expect continuous feedback on their work, and they expect to be able to find information that they need in seconds. We live in an age where everything's a touch of a button. And there's two types of communications. There's direct versus indirect. And direct communications has gotten a bad rap over the years. And the reason being is that people are afraid to say what they mean and mean what they say. And this can be prevalent in the workplace where anything you say to me, co-worker or an employee could be taken as offense. So we've gotten to the point where we skirt around the real issues. Why? Because we don't want to uh, hurt someone else's feelings or disturbing the peace. But out of complacency, it leads bad habits and a fear of being honest to the other person's face. 
And this only precipitates the issue. It escalates it often into productivity wasters as we spend all our time going around the problem, yet never getting to the core of it and finding a solution. And too many times this occurs. And this is where, you know, a coach should never be afraid of getting fired because you can't do your job properly if you can't say some hard truths. A good friend isn't someone that tells you things that you want to hear, tells you things that you need to hear. That's what makes a good friend. And if we're going to improve and we're going to be more productive, we need to sometimes tell it how it is and not just skirt around and beat around the issue. And that's why sometimes people have said, oh, direct communications, you know, it's, it's gotten a negative kind of vibe to it uh, over the years. But you don't have to be rude. And this is the mistake that people make when they attempt to communicate their feelings directly is that they may go to the lines of being too blunt, right? And this makes the other person go on the defensive because guess what happens? He or she puts up their wall and then the battle commences. The problem is it no longer becomes a discussion. It becomes now a fight. First, you have to understand it's natural. It's natural for people to put up a defense. If you want to be an effective communicator, you must first disarm your target listener. It's called dismantling the bomb before you decide to go in there and start tinkering with it. And the best way to disarm your listener is by giving him or her a compliment. So for every critical thing you say, there should be one positive thing before you counteract it uh, in terms of a negative impact of that critique. Secondly, you, you need to choose your words carefully in terms of making sure that you don't use words that sound critical in your critique rather than saying, I'm disappointed in you for being lazy and not pulling your weight. It would be much more effective instead to say things like omitting the words negative or emotional charges such as disappointed. Because why? That will bring about a feeling of guilt and, and lazy will bring about a feeling of indignant anger. So it's better to say, first of all, for example, I want to thank you. Thank you for helping me organize the files. You really took the initiative on that. I would like to talk to you about helping me more out on the floor. Sometimes it gets very busy out here and we need all hands on deck. If you do that for me, I would really appreciate it. Lastly, when you bring up a problem, you need to be ready with the solution. If you are not ready with the solution, then ask the target listener to brainstorm. Would you define the solution? and what that might be. And I would always say to anyone, when you're in this kind of scenario, always end, if you can, on a pleasant note with a polite phrase and even a smile. What would you think about that, Dr. Roshanak? Well, I was about to, I was trying to flash you to say something because I loved what you were saying and I choked. <clears throat> so excuse me, but I really loved what you said. I, I'd, li I'd like to communicate a really important point. I'd like to highlight what you said. So at first you said, <clears throat> excuse me, it's important to disarm the bomb. You start with something positive and then, then you go into the negative. Most people have understood that and have practiced that as a, how will I say this politely, a caca sandwich, <laughs> where you say something nice, you say something negative, and then you say something nice. And that does not go over well as it turns out. What you did was very different than that. You started off with and this is important, an authentic appreciation of what the person is doing. That's really important because in that case, you take yourself out of the equation, 
your own biases, your own frustrations, your own needs, your own whatever. And you can now honestly, objectively, and hopefully with a bit of empathy, truly see what that person is bringing to the table and therefore authentically appreciate it. You bring that forth and then instead of that negative statement, notice how you did not make a negative statement, Johnny. Instead, what you said was, I need help with this. I need more of this. Do you think you could, and now you're offering an opening to that person. It is not a, you know what, sandwich. Instead, it's a starting off with the authentic appreciation, excuse me, and then moving into a way that now that the person is in a, as you said, a better state, more receptive even to saying, this is what I need help with. Typically, when you ask someone for something, people love to help. And the clearer you are about what you need, specific details, et cetera, the better off you're going to be insofar as being able to get that because the, the person will have clarity and will be able to give you what you want because you've made clear what you want. Furthermore, if you give them an infrastructure and support and maybe a little something to say, here's how or what or who you can talk to, et cetera, then that also sets them up for success. You have to be part of that communication. You have to be, remember that communion. You have to be part of the equation that allows for the success. This is active participation. So I really loved what you said, and I thought the important highlight was that it's not a positive, negative, and end on a positive. Nobody likes that sandwich. Instead, it's an authentic appreciation, a request for what you specifically need, and a setting up of that person to succeed at that so it's a win-win situation. Johnny? Yeah, absolutely beautiful. If we could sum this up, what we're saying here is effective direct communication is number one, start with a compliment. Number two, disarm your target listener. Number three, choose neutral or positively charged words. Avoid negatively charged words, okay? Number four, be ready with a solution or ask your target listener to brainstorm a solution with you. And then number five, end on a pleasant note with a smile, folks. This kind of uh, communication might, might take some planning on your behalf, on your part. At times, it might not be an impromptu conversation. And it's a technique that works well if you think ahead of, of that particular conversation you want to have with someone, especially if it's a little bit more touchy, a little bit more sensitive. Even practice it beforehand. It sounds strange, but you don't want to practice it to death where you feel very reverse, very robotic. People don't want that. Then they won't relate to you so much. And I'm going to hit you with some things now, Dr. Roshanak. Employers who manage to successfully communicate their company's values and business goals to their employees have much lower turnover rates. Do you know that 7% of communication is verbal? What do you think about that? So there's this idea that 7% of communication is verbal and the, what is the rest of it? Actually, there's quite a large percentage that is after that 7% that is the sound of our voices, which is why social audio has been so powerful. So the ways in which we present ourselves orally carries uh, a significant percentage of information, the cadence, the rhythm, the volume, the intonation, so on and so forth, the pitch. These all carry also very valuable information. And we notice that on the app. We feel how people are. We can tell if they're really present. We can tell if they're in a good mood or a bad mood. You know, you can hear the authenticity in the voice or not, or how dedicated or how much they really know about what they're talking about. Are you really connected to that topic? Or are you just sort of saying some things that you've already heard? But that 
is a very important part. So although we say that 7% of communication is verbal and the rest of it's nonverbal, a, a significant percentage of information that we get is from the sound of a person's voice. This also is really important as we go into this more digital, technological, virtual age and time, especially with the pandemic, because already we were having some issues with people understanding communication, as I mentioned earlier, written communication through emails, and women tend to use more emojis when they send emails because they're trying to give a better feel. You know, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about emotional intelligence, that's very important about when we communicate how the other person will take what we're saying. Emotional intelligence is a huge part of that equation. But the fact that women tend to use more emojis, for example, in emails is so that they are, because they are more cognizant of whether or not the recipient will receive what they're saying in the way that they intend it. And then now we have also video, we have video interviewing, right? Not just video conferencing. And so are you in that video able to convey what a person would see in real life? Because as it turns out, according to the research, people tend to receive a more colder version. So if you and I were interviewing and let's say you were the interviewer and I was the interviewee, I were the interviewee, then I wouldn't come across as warm and maybe likable as I would in real life because you can only see part of me and you're not getting enough of the cues that the brain picks up when we are in real life and in physical contact with each other. So there's a way of, of doing a virtual or a video meeting that allows the recipient to get a little bit more information. One has to be a bit warmer than one would normally be if we were in real life in order to be able to get that information across. Johnny? You must have read my mind because... I'm good uh, at that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because 38% is right, is, is tone and, and inflection uh, and, and the way we go about it. I'm going to ask you a question. You, we talk about electronic communications, which is dominating our lives. And some people say communications is getting so bite-sized, before we know it, we'll be communicating only in emojis. If you get an email and the person sends you an email and just says, Roshanak, no hi, no dear, know anything else that form of communication does that come across to you as rude how would you take that communication i've come to find that we've moved from dear so-and-so to hi so-and-so to just so-and-so personally i'm not a fan <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm still saying dear quite a lot and hi if we've already had and it's a continuation of a conversation i personally am not a fan of someone who just uses my name no i find it a bit brusque I agree, because nine times out of ten, when you read down the email, is usually a telling off, or it's where one person is trying to the higher moral ground about a topic. Very rarely is it something constructive and positive. I, I take it as being curt, and I always say to anybody, there's no price for manners. I know in this world where people are worried at times when they write things down that they want to keep it as brief and as short as possible for other unintended consequences or sometimes people are stressed and they're not really paying attention as much as they should be so they keep it very very succinct and people are responding more to that so if you are writing an email and it's new business when it comes to text is keeping no longer than four or five paragraphs, if that, because people just lose their attention to it because we're living in such an era of bombardment of information. People are drowning in information. 
uh, what they're actually craving for is, is pearls of wisdom. I think that part of the thing is also being politically correct. Is it appropriate to say, dear so-and-so, so now we say hi? And I, and I disagree with you with respect to the fact that if somebody starts off this email with just my name, that it's going to be something negative or whatever. I think it's just uh, part of it is, is probably this idea of being as uh, brief and concise and pithy as possible. But I think it's also uh, really important to consider that we are human beings and as such respond to that. We have dehumanized ourselves so much over the last decades and also in schools, you know, where music isn't important, art isn't important. First of all, music's in the brain. It is very important. I myself am not a musician, but you know, I'm, I understand the importance of these sort of softer skills and softer or not hard sciences and not being exactly to the point. And since you're talking about communication storytelling, there's a, is a huge factor of how you speak to other people that will determine how that information will be received. So yes, we are drowning in information, but everybody has time for feeling good. Everybody. Everybody has time for something interesting. Everybody has time to connect in a way that makes them feel important, relevant, excited, in the loop, whatever. So I think it's really important for us to remember that we are human beings. And for example, it's now coming up more and more and more, as has been shown through science, that the number one greatest influence on us being happy and successful and having long lives is good, stable relationships. And you're not developing good, stable relationships when you're just going, hey, you, this is what you got to do. <laughs> because once the communication breaks down, the relationship starts to break down, whether it's your personal or your professional life. And, and, and he makes such good points. And I was thinking about that, whereas a lot of communication, 55% of it is body language. Body language. So many people, when you look at in the world of sport, for example, they, they try to hide what they're really feeling. If you think about a certain pressure situation, that someone's serving for a set, or they've got a match point or a break point in the world of tennis, for example, is a pivotal aspect of the game. You're not wanting to show your opponent you're nervous, you're stressed, you're trying to show strength, you're calm, you're collected, you're in charge of your emotions. Because it's all about edges. And one opponent is trying to get the edge over the other in a sense, oh, I feel like they're a bit nervous, so I'm going to make sure I'm going to hit the ball continuously back in the rally so that eventually they make a mistake. We spend so much time giving off information without realizing it. And body language is so, so crucial because when you look at in an interview scenario, if, people, if someone is kind of slouched in their chair or they're kind of very nonchalant in their body language, they're not making good eye contact, all of these are a no-no's because people are assessing you. We're human first. And we're social animals. The reason why we have face-to-face -face meetings or Zoom or video, have you ever thought about the intentionality of it, is to see your body language, the way you communicate, from the things you wear to what you speak. Everything is around the way you're communicating your body language. It's really, really important. And in a world where so many people are faking it, really important the way our body language is we're taking so many cues in negotiation in business in finding a job in a partnership in a collaboration in a relationship we're assessing each other subconsciously or otherwise and body language has a massive massive part what's your thoughts on that body language our bodies i always talk about so i'm a neuroscientist right I'm always talking about the brain, but I'm talking about science in general and the idea that our bodies 
we say the brain and the body. Well, the brain is part of the body last time I checked, but it's a central servo that runs it. So our bodies represent and reflect how we are feeling, what our state of mind is. When you talk about things like our emotions and our feelings, there's a physiology, there's a state of being that we have in our bodies that is then reflected out. So we say, I'm angry, I'm annoyed, I'm happy, I'm ecstatic, I'm joyful, I'm confused. I'm Whatever it is that you're feeling, your body is going to represent that, even in micro-expressions. So our face has more muscles than the rest of us, right? And so we have quite a lot of ability to finally express what we're feeling in our faces. And that's what we look at, right? We look at other people's faces. So whenever we're feeling something, we're going to look a certain way. And our brains are constantly calculating the environment and what's happening because it's important for our survival. And so whenever we're looking at other people and trust, you know, I've had a lot of conversations and rooms on trust and with you, Johnny, it's really important that we trust and trust has multiple aspects to it. And body language comes into that. If someone is saying something, so communication, is my body in integrity with what I am saying? Is it? If it is not, then I don't trust what you're saying, right? I don't believe what you're saying because what you say isn't congruent or in integrity with how you're standing or moving or the sound of your voice. So I doubt it. Now I doubt you. Now I don't trust you. Now we have a communication problem. So body language is important insofar as we, in our brains, are continuously calculating the truth, the predictability, how much we can trust a person's situation, and therefore how to respond and move forward. And these are, very, these are so lightning fast, they're often, almost always, unconscious. Because when we are paying attention to something, it's a little bit of a, a, a longer timeline. It takes more time. So understanding that your body is going to betray you and tell the truth is really important. So people are always talking about how you should move or stand or sit. There are coaches that are for voice, that are for movement, that how do you walk into a room? Do you look comfortable and confident? When you sit down, how much space do you take up? When you speak, are you speaking comfortably, slowly, or do you feel rushed? So you see that people who have power or import, they tend to take their time. They know people will wait. They know people will listen. When they sit, they often, especially men, they spread out, you know, I'm taking up space. That's okay for me. This is, you know, and then there's the work that was done by Amy Cuddy in the power posing, right? Take a power pose. So it goes in both directions. When you believe something, you behave a certain way. But when you behave a certain way, it can also lead to your belief of something. So in, in both ways, we are now communicating, not just with words, not just in writing, with everything that we have in our being and, and as well our energy. Did you ever walk into a room and you go, ooh, something bad just went down here? Or, wow, this is a great place. I want to hang out. We feel those things. And that's not woo-woo because our bodies are, are walking capacitors. We're walking batteries. So we do have energies that are given off from our bodies because of the electrochemical way that our bodies actually literally function for information processing. I was digesting everything. And I laid when, a lot on you. When it, come, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it comes to time, folks, if anyone says to you, I haven't got the time, I haven't got the time, and I'm too busy and I'm too busy, just as a point of reference, is either not important enough or is not that much of a priority, okay? 
If it's important enough, or is that much of a priority, time will be made for it, just as a future reference and as a hack. And I agree with what you said about power poses. Do you remember when George uh, W. Bush uh, was up against Al Gore and they had a debate and Al Gore was coming towards him using those power poses that you were talking about and, and George Bush kind of stopped and looked at him and almost took the heat out of the situation like, are you okay? Because he was trying to assert his dominance his masculinity to the voter, he's the leader. What do you think about those power plays between men? Oh, I mean, there's also the power play of, is my hand on top of yours when we handshake? Do I put a second hand on top? You know, like um, Donald Trump. All, how, he was famous for that. Well, he never that was let the go. firmness. That's right. The firmness of the shake. Am I breaking your hand? <laughs> the handshake is very important. It can't be too limp. It can't be too strong. Right. All of these are communicating what is going on with me to what is going on with you. And men, due to testosterone, tend to be more aggressive. And that's a normal thing, obviously, because that's testosterone. But it, within certain parameters, because if you want to affect, what is the point of communication? It's for us to be able to have this relational dynamic. And if you want to have a good relational dynamic, it cannot always be about you overpowering another person. Many people, and this comes from a lack of confidence and it comes from fear, as you mentioned earlier, they will overpower because they don't feel as powerful as they think they need to be in order to get what they want. And to get what they want is paramount. So they are going to brute force it as opposed to, and women tend to do this, finessing a little bit. This is why companies do much better when they've got men and women on the board together, when they've got them working on the project together. And actually, when it comes to gender difference, this has been shown. Women are more in touch, as it turns out, with the finer emotions, and they do consider and so they think they spend a little bit more time, like men are like, let's get down to it and hurry up. But they, you know, it's sort of like a measure seven times cut once. And so they consider and they take their time and then they go, well, this is probably going to be the best way using emotional intelligence because to have emotional intelligence, one of the most important parts of emotional intelligence is for you to be in touch with your own emotions. If you don't have that, you're not going to be able to relate to another person or, or be able to understand another person's emotions. So you won't be able to manage their emotions if you can't understand or manage your own. And so when men just come at it, you know, fast and furious, there's less of this emotional intelligence. And the funny thing is that it's not IQ, which is cognitive intelligence that's been shown statistically to correlate to life satisfaction and success, but rather emotional intelligence. Really interesting. And the way you broke that down, I'm just thinking about it in more depth because you're right. When you have more diversity in teams, it increases productivity. It really does. And so that's why it's important to get as much women into the world of tech and fintech that I operate in, or the fact that only 5% of CEOs across the major indices of the UK, US and Canadian markets come from an ethnic minority background. It's important because we don't want to have an echo chamber and we don't want to have the same, same and having this one way talk with ourselves. And it also enriches the whole experience for both the employee and the employee and brings out the best in people. It's study after study showing the more diverse the team, the more productive. And I was just thinking about what you said. 
do you think this overpower pose play it's masking an insecurity or is it actually really great emotional intelligence by the person doing it because they know it has an effect so tony robbins when he walks he's about seven foot tall almost he walks with this kind of presence with his chest and dominance as he speaks his voice is deep you know you listen do you think these people they know exactly what they're doing because they're highly tuning their eq in playing up to this power play so they can reinforce their dominance and their messaging great question i think it's about awareness and regulation so understanding how to use that emotional intelligence if i'm going to be like donald trump was not so emotionally intelligent and not letting go and squeezing someone's hand to the point that you know all these things, <clears throat> then that's not very emotionally intelligent, is it? So like any tool, you need an instruction booklet. When I work with my clients, I give them that knowledge, which is the tool that's really important. But then I also put it inside a conceptual intelligence. I give it context. Here's a hammer. That's your tool. Here's how to use it. That's the context. When are you going to use the hammer to build? When are you going to use the hammer to tear down the house? So on and so forth. So having that emotional intelligence, and like I said earlier, there are coaches that will teach you how to walk and talk and so on and so forth, that help to convey confidence. But if it is overdone, you have to know how and when to use it and how much. If Tony Robbins were to walk onto a stage with way too much chest out, way too much dominance, he would then overpower and lose his audience. What he wants is a good communion with that audience. So he wants them to feel confident that he's there and knows what he's doing and he's going to teach them and he's going to carry them and take them on this journey. But he doesn't want them to feel like they're going to be overpowered because that would cause, as is known in physics, an equal and opposite reaction. So emotional intelligence is not about I know this and therefore I'm going to use it to overpower you. It's the, here's the information that I have, that I know what's going on with me and I can effectively regulate emotions within myself and in others. That's one of the four components of uh, emotional intelligence. It's important to know and to feel and to show, but also know how much and when to pull back. You've got to be present. You've got to be attuned. That is the key factor, I think, Johnny. You're right. It's knowing when to turn it on and off and having that filter. And some people don't have that filter. I think they all have in common, they know the importance of body language. Even with Donald Trump, he knows the importance of the body language. So when he saw him previously as president, when he was meeting with the G7, he'd want to be in front of the line. I think there was a video clip with him pushing one of the leaders away. So he was the dominant one, the leader of the free world. They understood the importance of it. But like you said, others like Tony Robbins or other examples, they know their audience. So they tap into their EQ and then they manage their body language accordingly to whoever they're speaking to. And that is the art. That is an art. So that's why 55% folks of uh, communication is body language. Over 80% of Americans think that employee communication is a key factor in creating trust with their employers. I know you touched this on this before, but where does trust in communication come into play? 
between employee and employer, again, there has to be this awareness and this connection. If you trust someone enough to hire them, that's you, you're the employer, then that needs to be continuous as they are now being onboarded and as they're going through their work. One of the other things that I always talk about, we talked about emotional intelligence is now also spiritual intelligence. You may think, what in the world is that? And also, what does that have to do with this? Well, one of the practices that are involved in spiritual intelligence is mindfulness meditation. In mindfulness meditation, I always talk about this, people go, you lead from the front, you lead from the back, you lead from the middle, and where are you leading from? What happens when you practice mindfulness meditation enough so that you become sort of trait mindful, and this is, again, scientific studies, they show that you become more, and I don't want to use the word resilient, but people love that word, but you become more resistant to the emotional ups and downs, the roller coaster ride and all the stresses that can come with work. So as you practice mindfulness meditation, you become less reactive, you can maintain your equanimity, and this is really important because then you're able to see and use that emotional intelligence for your team. So if I am now not having that big, we said this in the very beginning of the room, you know, whatever is happening is going to be important in the way that I filter it if you're not communicating it well enough. And part of that filtering is dependent upon in the moment feelings as well. We prime the brain to receive something a certain way. So if I'm a good place, I'm going to be responding quite differently than if I'm in a bad place. And if I practice this sort of spiritual intelligence, then I can maintain my equanimity. And now I can use my emotional intelligence to see what's going on with you. I'm not so moved by all the things that are going on and all the noise, but I can see more clearly and then make good decisions that are responsive to the situation and not reactive. This also helps to engender trust between employer and employee, because as an employee, I trust that my employer, that my leader, that my team leader, my founder, whatever, uh, is really has in mind what I need and how I can best operate. They are leading well, and that allows me to trust them in that position. And trust is the root to most things. So you trust someone fundamentally when you're hiring a person because you trust them to solve their, your, your problem. You trust them in terms of the value that they bring. And it's a two-way street. The employee coming on board to a company trusts them in terms of the job opportunity they provide. And it's the same in the world of business. I often say, Dr. Roshanak, and you made so many good points there, that people think that people buy from people. I can like you, but it doesn't mean I'm going to buy from you. In fact, people buy from people because they trust them. They trust them to solve their problem. They've communicated it well enough. And they then trust their credibility behind that communication lines. And it's, it's such an important factor. And that's where I think I'm going to lead on to the next point. And interpersonal skills is such a critical aspect to all of this. Because 81% of people in my business, recruitment and careers, 81% of recruiters identify interpersonal skills as important. However, however, more than 60% of employers say that applicants are not demonstrating sufficient communication and interpersonal skills to be considered for jobs. Now, that comes from a, a, a publication called Business Time. So before you even started the, the race, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Does that come as a surprise to you, that's that, Dr. Roshanak? 
Not really. I think that most people are just now scrambling to survive. And it's hard to thrive when you're just trying to survive. And so when we talk about trust, one of the most important thing, one of the most important aspects of trust is, can I trust myself? We said this also in the beginning when you were talking about pitching. Do I trust that I'm going to be able to handle whatever comes my way? Do I trust that I'm going to be able to handle the rejection or the challenge or the friction or the whatever is coming? And the less I trust myself, the more disconnected I am with myself and the more easily I might become overwhelmed. And that's going to be difficult for any team to function well when it's like this. And as a good manager, I'm looking for people who are in a state of connection with themselves, who do trust themselves, who will be able to manage without quickly becoming overwhelmed, right? So again, going back to the spiritual practices and that spiritual intelligence, connecting to the emotional intelligence that then allows us the great context to use our cognitive intelligence. Skills can be learned, right? We talk about growth versus fixed mindset. Yes, I have a certain amount of skill and knowledge and so on and so forth, but I can still learn more. I can still improve, but it's going to be harder for me to change those other sort of softer skills and softer factors. So it's, it becomes really highly prized when we talk about this, this relationship of the employer-employee and trust and understanding that there's a stability there. We're all looking for stability. Our brains are great at adaptability, and you, you said that was number eight of the important qualities for people to have. Yeah, it's great that we can adapt to change. It's great that we can do that. But it's important that we have a sense of stability that is the groundwork, that is the foundation that allows us then to receive change and work with that change and see how we can best maneuver within and with that change. I'm just taking stock of what you're saying, and I agree, but I think at times people are too set in their ways, and that's what curtails them. They don't have their adaptability when it comes to their goal setting. And if you don't, you're not going to go with the changing conditions in a marketplace or the world of work or in your relationships. You have to constantly adapt, and especially with your goals. And you've got to communicate that, not just to other people, but to yourself. And you're, you're right. And I think one of the most important conversations we can all have when we're communicating is having an honest and frank conversation with ourselves. I think most people don't do that because it's hard. It's hard to sometimes give yourself some home truths. Most people go around feeling a little bit lost. When I ask people, what do you want? When I'm asking them for a job opportunity or, or for coaching, you know, sometimes they pause. Sometimes they just don't know. Because I think we take for granted there are a lot of people out there that don't fully know either what they want or they don't know themselves. And I agree with you in terms of emotions. I think there's one thing called intuition which can be really powerful. You know that instinct you get, Dr. Roshanow, when you buy a property, you just feel it. You feel it in your waters. However, emotions is the worst advisor because you can get caught up in the emotions of it and you get excited. It's a dream house. You're going to make an offer. You're going to make a bad offer because you're thinking emotively rather than just sit back, wake up the next day, Think with your logic and rationale. People love hard, don't get me wrong. 
people are inspired by passion. And sometimes in life, heart does win out. There's a brilliant clip with um, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who talks about how he started Amazon. And he mentioned that he had a conversation in the park with his boss at the time. He had a really high paying job and his boss was listening and listening. And he said, it's a really good idea. I think it's going to kick off, but it would be a better idea for somebody who didn't have as good a job as you have. And he said he was so taken back by that, it took him two days before he ended up going with Amazon because he actually went with his heart and his head. But he still took time. And I agree with you. I think too many people do knee-jerk reactions because we get het up, we get angry or caught in the the moment. And we allow those emotions sometimes to, to, to actually dictate our clarity of thought. I don't know what's your thoughts on that. Very interesting what you said, and it speaks also to the masterclass that you and I will be introducing to our audiences. When it comes to decision-making, we think that we need to make logical decisions. And we have executive function that allows that logical decision-making. But for those people, and I bring the science back in again, who have clear, intact executive decision-making ability insofar as that logical function is concerned, but have damage to their emotional centers, to the limbic system. These people actually fail to make decisions. They have the ability to measure and consider what is important. What are the important variables? Use the example of the house. Why should I get that house? What's good about that house? What's wrong with the house? Why should I give this much? How, you know, da, 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 all the different variables. They consider and consider and consider and consider and consider and consider. They never actually make the decision. You need the emotional factor so that after you measure seven times, you can actually make the cut. We think that we shouldn't have emotions in our decision making, but in fact, we need emotions in order, in our biology, to make a decision. Now, here's the thing, and you, you mentioned this again, and you make great points, Johnny, just of highlighting what you're saying. And that is, it's not that you shouldn't have the emotion in there, but take a moment so that you are not being emotionally hijacked. Again, the key word here is regulation. For example, when we procrastinate, we are emotionally hijacked so that we know it's good for us. We know what we should do, but then we don't do it because our emotions take over. We want a good balance of each, and that's how the system is designed to function optimally. And that's exactly what we want is that optimal function. When we're talking about making decisions and emotions and things like this, if we think I have to have no emotion in this decision, that's not going to be a good decision. And also not a decision at all, really. And if you are really emotional about it, then you're not taking advantage of the logic and the reason that allows you to make the better decision. So in either way, you would have a disadvantage. Bringing the two together and having that sort of cooling down period so that you can still have your emotions. They don't disappear. They're still going to be around, but that you are now in a better position to have that regulation that balances them like that two day. Let me think about this, but then you move forward anyway. And it's a, it's a thoughtful, emotional response. Does that make sense, Johnny? It it totally does. It's just to press that pause button. You know, we are all guilty. And I especially have been in the past when I was much younger, where I get het up. And I would fall into that classic knee-jerk reaction when I communicated. 
And it doesn't serve you well. It really doesn't. I'm going to go on to a next point and welcome Storm to the stage as well. And if you do want to join us, uh, you're more than welcome. And Dr. Roshanak did mention about the masterclass. We are going to be talking about in that masterclass, just send us a message about how to go from stuck to unstuck. When it comes to the world of work or business, we'll be carrying out. And if you enjoy this kind of conversation, I think you'll enjoy that type of class. So just reach out, send us a message. We'll make it happen. I really want to hear all the different perspectives on this because we've got some really fantastic people who have got doing so many great things in their line of work and where they're from. Do you know this, folks, that more than 90% of employees would rather hear bad news than no news? More than 90% of employees would rather hear bad news than no news. Anyone want to chime in on that? Dr. Roshanak, I'll just say something really quick because I really want to hear from everybody on the stage. But bad news versus no news. No news leaves me without any information. Remember, I always talked about stability and trust and predictability. If I know, even if it's bad news, then I can start to create a plan of how I will handle it. If I don't know, that is much more unstable. There's so much unpredictability in there. And the brain doesn't like that. We like stability. We like predictability. I can even trust that you're a liar, but I'm still trusting that because it's predictable. And then that calms me down and puts me into a more stable state. So bad news is much better than no news because information, although we're drowning in it, is still very important for us to know how to guide ourselves through different scenarios and landscapes. I totally agree. Storm? To build on that, Dr. Rushnak, if you've ever really have been around Tony Robbins and talks about the human needs, the six human needs, one of them is certainty and one of them is uncertainty. And so a lot of no news leaves you in that uncertain state. And that is if it's one of our basic human needs and probably one of our predominant to get certainty in our life, that can drive somebody crazy. And so at least bad news is you're certain that you know, and the uncertainty is, well, I haven't heard anything. That level of communication or that piece of information, even if it's not so good, you at least know how to get a game plan. And, and to Dr. Rushnak's point, it's very important that we're able to navigate and deal with the things that come up because not everything in life is good. If I'm not doing a very good job at my, my job, and my employers don't like my performance or they're not satisfied with something, but they never address it. How would I ever know that I'm doing something wrong if I feel I'm trying to do what's best for me or the company or the client or whatever position that I'm in? So I have to 100% agree with you, Dr. Roshnick, and I'm glad that you brought that up, Johnny, because a lot of times we, we become what we call protective liars. And the protective liar is I don't want to tell my spouse because it's bad news and I don't want them to think badly of the decision or the choice that I made. And unfortunately, the longer it goes that is withheld, usually the messier it gets when it finally comes out. And typically the truth always has a way of somehow coming out. So appreciate you letting me speak on that, Johnny. Do you think your athleticism and your size has aided you when it comes to the power of words and communications, or has it curtailed you? Because we spoke about this earlier, Dr. Roshanak and I, about examples of power poses when it comes to men and men. And I gave the example of Al Gore and George W. Bush, and they had that debate, and Al Gore was walking around with his arms open, trying to be the alpha male. Do you, I would love your insight because of your world where communication comes in and how that a whole kind of body language piece affects it or not. 
I think, 100% of it. And for those of you who don't know the background, I was a professional athlete when it came to being a physique, men's physique athlete. So everything had to do with how we were judged on stage with what we presented as our strengths and how we hit our weaknesses. And so a lot of times, if you'll notice, when it comes to sales or when it comes to a relationship, you can tell non-verbally when someone is relaxed and comfortable with someone And you can also tell when someone is nervous. And I think with sports, what that ended up teaching me is I think sports is a really good microcosm of life lessons. Sports, in my opinion, this is strictly my opinion, so you can't look it up as a factor, Google. I would say sports were designed to fail and allow human beings to understand what an alternative game plan is when they do fail. I have never known the perfect athlete for one sport that dominated the sport since they started to when they finished, if they had any long or length of a career. And I think a great example is is Tiger Woods, for example. You might not like golf, but I would say that golf is one of those things to where it's not really about physical ability and how strong you are. It is a complete mental game as far as how you can control your emotions and also your body right? Your nervous system, your thoughts. And when we really look at, you know, how sports plays a role into communication with people, what you also learn is the higher stage and higher level you go, the more spotlight and under the microscope you become. And I think there's a lot of things that can get misconstrued when we speak in train of thought and we don't think before we speak and we say something and it's received a certain way where you can immediately tell non-verbally that someone shuts down or someone opens up to you based on how you say something and the cadence in the voice and also how it's received and how you intended it. There are so many things when it comes out of your mouth, from your brain to your mouth, to their ears, to their brain, there's so many things that are so important that might get missed or it might get distracted or distorted or misled. And I think that, you know, in relation to your question, Johnny, sports has everything to do with how we can become better, not only in our jobs, but also with our relationships with people around us who we're comfortable with and also who we meet with for the first time. And I believe that every connection that we make, there's some form or fashion, there's a reason why that connection happened. More importantly, some are going to be here for the long haul. Some are going to be here maybe just in and out. It's just a cordial greeting and you might never see that person again. However, I want to leave someone or the relationship or the conversation better than I found it. And I think if we all were able to do something along that line, I think the communication level, we get good at the things that we practice. We lose the things that we don't. Hopefully that helps. And I totally agree with you 100%. I I go on about it a lot. Dr. Roshanek will will testify to it. Where I use sports so many times and how it's transferable to the world of business, careers, because it teaches us so many things, discipline, teamwork, leadership, how to problem solve, you know, how to deal with pressure is incredible. And that's why you're so effective what you do. And the last question before I move on to everybody else is, Storm, are you more comfortable? Or do you think you're more effective with face-to-face communications or through an instrument like this via audio? I, I personally like face-to-face, and, and this is the reason why. I'm looking at your profile picture right now, and I have no idea what you're thinking, feeling, or wanting to do. And a lot of the times, uh, I had I had just the, recently, just a quick story. I had a gentleman who from Ohio didn't even know who this guy was. And so he decided to make a video on Instagram. And it went viral. And I'm like, all right, cool. This guy thinks I'm a fitness fraud. This is what I live for. 
instead of me getting upset and retaliating back, what I did is, hey, why don't we get on an Instagram live tomorrow? And I would rather speak with you as opposed to post about you. And I hope that you will speak with me instead of post about me. So you know where my heart and my head is. So that way we can get on the same line. And he accepted an invitation. To me, I know when I look somebody in the eye, whether it be virtually or whether it be in person, I know typically where they're wanting to go or how to disarm or how to escalate a situation if it needs to be escalated, which very rarely does a situation ever need to be escalated. I look to disarm and run before I try and stir the beehive, so to speak. Face-to-face to me allows people to give me more than just what they're saying, it, their posture, their hand gestures, how fast they move, how much they shift in their seat. Human lie detectors, if you'll notice that high-level intelligence people, it's really tough to get something on the voice, but man, are they really good in person. And I, I would love to say that I'm an expert at something. I don't know a whole lot in my life, but I do know that when people are feel comfortable with me or I know that they feel uncomfortable, I want to make them feel comfortable so that way we can have a real conversation. I don't like surface conversations. To me, when someone asks, how are you? I'm like, do you really want to know or are you asking that because you're conditioned or programmed to ask that? And I would rather know, look, how are you, Johnny? We haven't talked about you. I want to know about you. What's going on in your life that maybe is really good or really excellent? Or what's going on in your life where you think things are falling apart at the seams? And to me, that cuts the five to 10 minutes out on life to where we're going through just those civil exchanges. I want to be able to get down and dirty with someone and really have a conversation that I might learn something from and make a connection as opposed to someone give me those standard canned answers, which you're going to give everybody except the people in your life that you really trust. I like the trust factor. Trust is built and destroyed on who I see face to face has nothing to do on social audio because I believe that we can mean to say something and in social audio, it gets taken one way, but really truly looking someone in the eye, you can tell if they're sincere. So I think the face-to-face definitely has its benefit. Great points. I think men at times where we're good at talking about stuff we've done in terms of positive stuff or, or the weekend or maybe talking about sport, but we're still very bad at talking about things that hits the core in terms of vulnerability or when things go wrong. We we try to put a mask on it or brave face on it. And I think that's why men disproportionately suffer to have higher rates of suicide is actually the number one killer for the age, for men under the age of 50. It, it's really, really important how we communicate our feelings as well as everything else. Jacqueline, welcome to the stage. Uh, Dr. Roshanak, do you want to chime just, in? Yeah, just for two seconds. I really appreciate what you said, Storm, but I also want to bring in the cultural factor. I spent some years in Germany and in the US and probably the UK and many parts of the world. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. You know, it's a pleasantry. It's actually just a salutation. How are you doing? You know, <laughs> nobody's waiting for an answer. They'd be shocked if you started to. But in Germany, when you say to someone, how are you doing? You better have time to stop and wait because they will answer you in detail. you're so right and that's another really important point culturally plays a massive part in communications the way you communicate to someone in saudi because i do business all over the world is very different to say how you communicate to someone in sweden you have to have that emotional intelligence dr roshanak said in terms of understanding who your audience are and understanding the kind of idiosyncrasies to go with it subtle kind of cultural dynamics you know is it rude to act in a certain way you know, is it rude to even handshake with someone or, 
Is there a certain custom in doing things? Or is it perceived as wrong in terms of being too pushy, too aggressive? Here in the West, we can be quite like, we want it now, now. Sense of urgency, we can be a little bit aggressive. Whereas there is that kind of saying, you know, manana, manana, with certain kind of stereotypes. Don't always play out truth, but there's a different pace. There's also a different type of subtle cultural dynamics that come in play that affects our communications. And that's where EQ comes in massively. Jacqueline, I know you and Dr. Roshnak do a lot of stuff together. Over to you. Thank you for bringing this up because I think this is probably one of the most important skills that people are not developing, both in companies, but we see this in school as well. We see more and more children that are not learning what are considered soft skills in communication and understanding how they can effectively work together and communicate with each other, not only through their words, but through all of the things that you've been saying, including body language and how they're communicating with their eyes and how they're communicating with their words. And what we all can fully understand, especially here on Clubhouse, is even, I love the, the title of this, Words Have Power. And what one word means to one person and what it means to another person can be two very different things. I was uh, sharing some space here with some friends the other day and what one word meant to one person, what one word meant to somebody else, a completely different trigger in one person, which was really fascinating um, to watch and then dig into a little bit. One of the things that I find fascinating and I love this conversation so much is I wanted to look up kind of those stats and numbers and some of the figures that you were all talking about. And one of the things that has surprised me the most in what I've discovered is the amount of distrust. And it was an article that was done by Forbes and 82% of employees don't trust that their bosses are telling them the truth which is a remarkable number to me because what we know right now in the world of business and in our homes is we know that well-being and happiness needs to be a focus and something that is truly an important part of all of our lives. And it's something that we're starting to see companies work towards, but if we don't even have trust in what our leaders are saying to us, that astounds me. So I have a question for all of you and Storm, I know you'd be a great contributor to this and, and anyone else on um, the stage right now is, you know, what are those key three or five top things that we can make a list of? What are those key things that not only can we talk about today that will really help everyone here look more closely at the importance of communication skills? What are those top five things that we can do to start implementing in our lives right now, but how we can do this not only at a business level, but also in our homes, with our families, with our friends? What are those three or five things that we can start implementing today that will start to make a difference with our own communication skills and also help increase and be part of that trust that we have with people, which ultimately increases our happiness, our well-being, and understanding and communication with each other in the world because that's where i think there's so much downfall right now is that trust in every aspect in our news media outlets in our communication and authenticity even with each other on this platform so thank you everyone and i'd love to come up with some actual practical tips that, that people can take home today i'm going to give one i know storm to hit his mic and that's listening listening is one of the most important aspects of communication. 
and successful listening is not just about understanding spoken or written information, but also understanding of how the speaker feels during communication. If a speaker can see and feel that someone is listening and understanding, that can then help build a stronger and deeper relationship between them. And careful listening, folks. Do an exercise with yourselves. If you ask the question to, to a lot of people, do you have good listening skills? They'll say yes. But you'll be amazed when you actually do a listening exercise how many things you actually miss. There's a difference between active listening and passive listening. It's really important because if you listen, you then have information. And with sales, for example, whenever I've spoken with sales teams or sales individuals, they think, oh, it's all about me selling the product, me selling the, the service, the fab principle, which is features, advantages, and benefits. And too often salespeople just talk about the features and not the advantages or benefits. What makes a great salesperson to a, a bad salesperson is that if you're going to have highly effective salespeople and sales teams, you've got to have listening. And 80% of your time should be listening and 20% of your time selling. Why? Because you have information that then leads to data that then allows you to sell and effectively communicate the solution to their problem. And that's why listening and careful listening also creates an environment in which everybody then feels safe. We're in this environment now to express our ideas, our opinions, our feelings, or plan and solve problems in a creative way. That's why I'd say listening. Back over to you, Storm. How do you follow that, Johnny? You know, Jacqueline, that, that's such an important question that I think that can gloss over sometimes, really how deep that can be when it comes to us making that connection to say, oh, these are two or three tips. And Johnny, I love your tip. Active listening means you're listening to the words and processing what the delivery is intended to be. And we can look past sometimes some of the things that might be misspoken because I misspeak all the time. You know, one of the things that we go back to Tony Robbins is it's also the feeling of being liked and accepted and belonging. And very often, you know, Jacqueline, in, in answer to your question directly is face the fear. It's okay to be real with someone. It's okay to talk with someone and speak from your heart and not your head and try and say everything the right way in your head. Because a lot of the times, by the time it gets to your mouth and their ear, it might not be the exact same thing that you thought. You know, what I find very interesting about this as well is, you know, I was afraid to talk to people because I wasn't sure if they're looking at my eyebrow to see if something's out of whack, looking at my shirt to see if they like the color. It was like that people-pleasing moment, right? And I thought that everybody had it all together. And I started to realize that, you know what, I'm just a normal individual as well. You know, why am I putting everyone on a pedestal and I don't feel like I belong? They might feel the same way they might feel like they don't belong. So how can I make them more comfortable to feel open enough and trusting enough to be able to tell me things that they know, number one, the integrity is not going to leave that head once it goes in. I'm not going to go speak and gossip about that person if they told me something personal. We get permission to ask questions. And a lot of the times I think that we want to be loved. We want to belong. And you know, the second thing is practice your active listening. I just want to add that on, Johnny, because the more that we practice, and, and people really don't understand sometimes what that is. See, with Clubhouse, you can actually be online and you can be listening to this room, and this could be in the background as a distraction or a noise for you where you pick up a few nuggets here and there.
And then there's that other type of person to where they're listening and hanging on every word. They have a notepad in front of them or they have an iPad where they're like, you know what? I came to this room to get something and I just got it. What else can I get? And I think the difference between the consumption and just the way it's consumed and what you're going to do to put that into practice and to execute, those would be my two tips. So Jacqueline, hope that helps in answering your question. Great share. Okay, so I think is uh, yeah. Let's let's carry on with this, and in terms of giving some takeaways as well as talking about some strategies. Barani, are you there? What's your thoughts? I love this conversation. I think for me, it's acceptance. It's accepting that I don't always agree with what this person is saying. I don't have to agree with it. We often are not accepting the person standing in front of us because they are saying something that doesn't resonate with what we want or what we think because we're spending too much time in ourselves instead of as particularly when we think about business and the relationships that we have in those situations but just in general there's so much competing for our attention and we're constantly forming opinions about things that part of what gets in the way is our own idea and opinion about what the other person is saying instead of just meeting what they're saying with openness with acceptance and where do we go from here? Because we always think there's this A or B, but there's a C. There's a third way to look at it, a third option potentially. And also I'd say letting go of being right. Being right doesn't get us anywhere. We don't move the needle forward. We're not having an impact when we're so focused on, I just want to be right. Those are two of the biggest things. And I was in that conversation with Jacqueline. It was actually the one that was having the reaction to uh, a word that was said because it didn't resonate with me for the situation that it was being used in. I kept thinking, why does this bother me so much? I realized why it didn't sit well, and I made a conscious decision to push back on the word. But I thought about it. I thought about the person. I thought about the context it was being used in. That is also a part of communication, is to be able to push, to be able to have an uncomfortable conversation. Where I think it falls down is when emotion gets involved. And uh, I can say honestly for myself, I mean, that's when I've lost the argument in the sense of, or I've lost my ability to communicate, not the argument, I've lost my ability to communicate effectively because my emotions are controlling the words that are coming out of my mouth. A superb point. And if you can, emotions. And an emotional, powerful speech can enrise such passion. There's only so much you'll do for yourself, but people do the craziest things for causes. They really do. If you're just doing things for yourself, you'll only go so far. And if you think about all the orators of our time, from Winston Churchill, we'll fight him on the beaches, that famous speech that he said, it inspires. An emotion can be powerful, but at times it can tell you if you don't manage it. I, I agree with you. Emotions can be a good thing and also it can blight you as well if you don't effectively communicate it in the right kind of way. Thank you, Barani. Appreciate you. Dimple, over to you. Words do have so much power and I think it's it's like what you say, but it's also how you say it. I think that's what people have to be cognizant of is when you say something, how are you saying it? How is it being delivered? 
What is the tone? Because the same words can have a different connotation or different meaning, depending on how you are how you're sharing those words, like what's your tone? I think that's something like when you choose your words, I always say choose your words carefully, but you also have to choose your tone carefully. And then when it comes to like communication and storytelling, effective communication is so important. I think that storytelling is one of the things that more entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders need to incorporate into business because storytelling is something that people will really be drawn in. They're going to remember you and they're going to want more. They're going to associate that story with something to do with you and your brand. It's going to help you stand out amongst the five to six other people that they might be exploring to work with. Those are my thoughts. Thank you. Really good thoughts. Great. I wanted to talk about a second strategy, and I think people are craving for this. Straight talking. Straight talking. Conversation is the basis of communication. Right? We must not neglect this importance. So even a friendly conversation with colleagues can build mutual trust. And it can even detect problems before they become serious. So a healthy dose of chatting can lead to opportunities, sometimes business opportunities. Be accessible friendly because you never know who you end up talking to and it, and people appreciate straight talking more than ever before i really do believe that i think it's really important because as you said you know we talked about it before bad news is better than no news the the more that we have the opportunity to connect with each other number one that builds trust because it also builds the rapport the understanding you know where someone's coming from so even if they're not specifically communicating or articulating something in the moment because you have had some history you're already able to put context. Context is so important. We talked about that. How do we put things in context and what is the correct context in which to put something? And as we're building up trust, you talked about this in so many rooms already, Johnny, as we're going into this hybrid way of working, those people who are working virtually from home don't have that opportunity for the proximity that helps to build trust. I'm going to turn to the person that's closest to me. I'm going to probably promote the person that's around me because I have a trust. I have a rapport. I know they can do this. They're right there. And there is something to that, that physically being present and being able to connect. And also as Storm was saying, looking into someone's eyes, having them be right there when something quickly comes up, it's much faster. It's immediate. And there is this more powerful connection. And also just to be real neuroscientific about it, you know, physically, when we touch each other, there is the bonding hormone of oxytocin that gets released. And that causes us to bond together. That brings us closer together. And I'm always going to go with the devil I know. Yeah, such great points. Uh, Linda? Yes, thank you. First, I'm enjoying the conversation. So good communication. I, yes, sometimes a challenging thing for people. And I love how you asked the question about straight talk. I spent so many years of my life scared to talk straight talk because I had this tremendous fear of judgment and it controlled my every word and that would come out of my mouth. And like Storm mentioned, you know, people pleaser, I was the ultimate people pleaser. Definitely my picture was in the dictionary when you looked it up. And straight talk was something that I had to learn to do. It was through no longer being fearful of what people would think of me that I was able to move into that place of straight talk. And I'll just share a short story is um, I've been with my husband for, by that time it had been 29 years. 
we have a great relationship. We do communicate. There's sometimes it does fall apart a little, but we always bring it back together. And I was going through something in my business. I was losing a lot of money and getting to the point where I was going to have to file bankruptcy in my business. And I had to tell him and I agonized over it. I agonized over it for about three weeks before I finally told him. And when I sat down to tell him, I just straight talked it. I just said, I have to file bankruptcy. Like that was it. I didn't, I didn't pussyfoot around it. I just said it straight out. And in that moment, I was so scared to say it because I was scared of what his reaction was going to be. And that's what was eating me up for three weeks. But his reaction was, okay, what do we need to do to fix this? And that was it. And he, it wasn't anything that he really was stressed about. I made it up in my own mind of how he was going to respond or react to it. I think that's such an important thing for us to realize that the people that we're talking to, they have their own perceptions of everything going on in life and they're living their life. They have their own ideas and their own concepts of, of what's going on in life. We can oftentimes super hyper exaggerate what we think they're going to think or respond to us. But really, we need to just put it out there and have the balls is not really worry about what they're going to think or say about what we've said. This is Linda Sunshine. I hope I shined a light on it. You certainly did, Linda. Uh, lovely hearing from you. I love that. But Damien, are you there? Are you I'm here, Johnny. What are your thoughts? Sure thing. I think that, that straight talk is a hugely important aspect of just life in general, not necessarily just for business. I think it seems to be the topic here has, has mainly been focused on the business components of these of communication and storytelling and all these different ways that we, we choose to deliver information. But I think in life, just that straight talk is, is crucial, more so with yourself than with anybody else. I'll lean into storytelling for a second because I feel that a lot of people miss the importance of storytelling. We I think have this preconceived notion that if somebody's a good storyteller, you're waiting for them to tell you a full story. But that's not what we're really saying. Being a good storyteller means that you are very skilled at painting the picture you want somebody to see. At sculpting your words in a way that allows the audience to feel something a little differently. And this is used in long form story, but it's also used in sales. It's also used in, you know, just simple, subtle interactions. The difference of, oh, it's beautiful outside. And, oh yeah, I'm currently enjoying the view out my window. The aspen trees are just starting to get their buds and there's a storm rolling in, you can see off in the distance. But right now we kind of have a, a lot of sunshine and warmth and, oh, look, some squirrels are playing. When you take just a moment to add in a few details, it allows the audience to be present with you in a way that is often missed with a more factual, deliberate approach to communication. I just want to lean into the power of storytelling. Just let people know that it's not just the big thing, it's the little nuances and subtleties of how you allow the person you're interacting with to, to see and hear and feel precisely what you want them to feel. Thanks. It's such an important point. And I go on about this a lot, because if you don't own your own personal narrative, 
and you're not able to articulate your story, you're going to uh, struggle in so many aspects when it comes to relationships, when it comes to climbing the career ladder, when it comes to you as a brand, when it comes to you as a person. You know, we are hardwired to be receptive to stories. Stories have been told since time began. You look at the caves, you look at the hieroglyphics, everything in terms of communications. It's really important, folks. And the good news is we can all be better at it. We really can. And a lot of this mindset or a confidence spin. We feel, I'm not a good storyteller. But like with anything in life, practice makes perfect. Yes, there are some individuals that just naturally they're predisposed to being a good storyteller. They might have bags full of charm or they're a really good kind of speaker, but we can all get better. But it, it, it's such an important skill. In the face of AI and automation, it's one of the critical skills that I say when I'm talking about this, these topics up until 2030 and beyond. Anyone want to chime in on that? Oh, just yeah, free. it's Paul Nadeau. It is such an important skill to develop because, as you said, I can't see one being more important than to be able to communicate with your fellow man, to be able to connect with another human being. You mean your it, fellow human, right, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> yes, I mean that, Dr. Roshnak. <laughs> I've used it myself. I mean, I'm a former hostage negotiator, and the ability to communicate and connect with someone in crisis is so, so important. But it also applies in business and in life. I mean, if we can step in and use our stories to make a connection with the human being across from us because we're more similar than we are different it's so important to remember that is that if we can imagine ourselves in the place of the other individual but if we can imagine ourselves in their place how would they want to be spoken to and then choose the words then the tone of voice as was uh, spoken to by barani she talked about the importance of tone delivery and if you're face-to-face -face body language, but everything. It's so important, and it is, Johnny, a skill that can we, we can each develop, and it's one worth doing. It's an investment in, in connection. So I just wanted to add that, Johnny. I want to ask a question before I go to Mo and, and Eric, because I like conversations to be conversations. And in your role in terms of negotiations as a former hostage negotiator, one of the key aspects and strategies when it comes to communications and being effective at it is stress management. And Dr. Roshanak has spoken about stress in other rooms in terms of stress can actually be very useful and can actually aid you in your work in small quantities. I wanted to ask you a question. What was your ability to manage stress one of your superpowers in being effective when you're coming to what you were doing in terms of hostage negotiations? Yes, it was, Johnny. It's such an important thing. Imagine if a hostage taking was not planned, if it wasn't done for a particular motive, money or some type of bargaining chip, if it was done on a spur of the moment where the criminal just their search, uh, their situation just started to break apart and they felt trapped. So they grabbed somebody as a bargaining chip. You can imagine what they're going through. And they're not hearing the first part of my conversation because all they're hearing is the sound of their heart beating loudly and the voices in their head telling them that they're messed up, that they can't get out of this. And so to be able to manage those few moments, all they're going to hear is they're going to hear broken language from me. They're going to hear, hi, Paul, help. 
and they're not going to hear anything more because it's like having their head underwater. They can't hear a thing. They're under such stress. Imagine somebody that you're talking to who's just gone through something very, very difficult. They won't hear the first part of your dialogue. So you, you, your narrative, you're going to have to repeat it. You're going to have to repeat it softly. And the words that we always used to start one of these negotiations is, Hi, I'm Paul. I'm the negotiator. I'm here to help. And I would say it in that tone of voice, that sincere tone of voice, but I would wait for them to hear those bits and pieces to the point where my voice and a little bit of time could calm the situation down. Because unless I got them down to a calm state, a, a state in which they could actually hear what was going on and participate in the conversation, I would get nowhere. And so if they were yelling, I would speak softly. There's a way of doing this because if somebody is yelling and you're yelling, then nobody is hearing each other. So if somebody is yelling and think of a, a situation where you might have been with somebody who was really kind of losing it and, and their emotions were taking over. If your emotions matched theirs, it was a bad match. Your emotions have to, you have to be in control of that, control of your own emotions and just speak softly so that they'll want to listen to what it's being said. Managing stress Mine and theirs was imperative in any one of those things. I couldn't let stress come in with me. I just had to remember what I was there for, how I trained, and just to deliver the best I possibly could. I really appreciate your insights. And it's so true because when you're under stress, folks, you may misunderstand other people because you send what's called confusing nonverbal signals. You can uh, use funny t patterns of behavior. So it's really important the stress management side when you communicate. Can I say something to you? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much. I just want to continue with what Paul had said. I think it's a really important point, and I love that Damien brought it up about storytelling because we haven't talked that much about it. Storytelling is uh, over 40,000 years old. And with respect to what um, Paul was saying, because it was our, our, our first really powerful mode of communicating with people that we didn't know. And in this case, what Paul is talking about is helping to bring people into an alignment and the moving from the head to the heart. And I, and I know Girish can speak to this also, but the idea that when we speak to another person as the storyteller and then the listener, our brains actually synchronize. Literally the areas in my brain as the storyteller that are lighting up are going to be found lit up in your brain if you are aligned with me, if you are in tune with me. And so in the case of bringing someone down from this hot, scary place, as a, as a good storyteller, you can help to bring someone out of their head and into their heart and into alignment with you. There's a neurobiology of this. This is neuroscience, not woo-woo. It's the neurological basis or the neurobiological basis of communication and storytelling that we literally synchronize our brains. And that, that storytelling is not this one way, although it sounds like I'm telling the story, it's like I'm a speaker. But when it is properly done, it becomes very much a two-way interaction and that communion that I mentioned when we first started. And it brings our emotions in reels them in and helps to shape them because the storyteller can with some facility move from this complicated task of negotiation and where you're at and where I'm at 
and take control of that situation by taking control of that other person's brain and their and their neural responses, bringing them into alignment, transporting them into a place that they're at. So when Paul is talking, that person's experience is going to change from where they are and in their head and in their emotional hypervigilant state into as Paul is being calm, using his tone of voice and the words that he's using into this other space. So storytelling is incredibly powerful for biological reasons as well as sociological. And and what Paul was talking about has a very powerful scientific component to it. I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, Johnny, may, may I add one more yeah, thing? All right. I worked as a, a detective in the Special Victims Unit. And I remember on one particular occasion, I got a call from one of the detectives I was working with. I was headed home. She was, I was training her, and I said, if there was anything that happened uh, that was out of the ordinary, just give me a call, come back. She called me, and she said that they, uh, we had just received some information that there were two children, ages 12 and 14, that had been kept in cages for years. They were locked up as animals for years, and that I should come back because some witnesses were coming down, as was the children's services. Well, of course, when you hear information like that, the first thing is that can't happen. It doesn't happen in a community like ours. I won't go through the whole story because I do tell this as a story. But I'm going to go to what Dr. Roshanak was talking about. And in order for me to do my job, once we rescued the children, so they had been locked in cages for a number of years, tied to beds, let out very, very few times, it was my job to get the story from them as an interrogator, as an interviewer, and as a detective. I remember going into a room with one of the boys, and this was his, he believed this woman to be his mother and this man to be his father, when in fact they were uncle and aunt, but it doesn't matter. But they were also told never to dishonor your parents. And so getting the story from them was going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible. But I'm good at what I did. And so the boy was sitting on the ground in this room, and I sat down on, on the ground with him. We just sat there. He'd never said anything. I never said anything. And for... A little while I let the silence go on, but then I started talking about some of the things that I had been through in my past because I had been severely abused as a child myself. And I disclosed a little bit of what I had gone through. And in doing so, in this calm voice, the boy started to look at me and he listened to my story. And I think he realized that he wasn't alone. And it took a little while, but he began to open up and I got the story from him. It is so very important, had I not used that personal story of something that I had experienced that was not anything compared to what he had, but it was something of similar content that connected us. And he looked at me, and I'm just going to fast forward that over the next uh, few weeks, that boy became so attached to me, he told me everything that had happened, and he went on to help other uh, children who had been abused. He went on to be uh, a speaker in different schools talking about abuse. And, and that's the power of a story, my friend. That is the power of a story. Wow. Yeah, I wow, just wow, wow. appreciate you to take a moment there. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Oh, it's hard to follow, follow on from that. Mo, over to you. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, everyone. What an amazing space, Paul. And 
I'm just, oh, as a mom of a preteen and a teenager, I need all of those negotiating skills. So I, I'll share something from my dad's perspective. I grew up in India and my dad is my guru. He's almost 90 years old. I would always watch him like communicating, constantly in communication, but so much silence, so much silence. Communication is not uh, a particular message or a language. It's it's just this interaction between these various forces of life. As I uh, was growing up, I always used to watch him, his communication, his relationship with the food that he ate, the way he ate, the water he drank, uh, the way he like the way he walked in his six yard of white cloth, somewhat like. <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi. And, uh, you know, that's that's the attire he wore. No matter who laughed at him, he didn't care. Uh, also, the way, way he honored the breath with so much gratitude, all the creatures around him, including the plants, everything seemed to be working for him in spite of all the challenges, the calm that he has, even till today, the pillar of strength that he always for me and my sister. It's, it's just so inspiring to me. So again, some people, you know, have seen that life constantly cooperates but with other people you know sometimes it feels like everything is going against him and i think that all comes down to communication if we hold ourselves just like an absolute individual it's like we are not we are moving away from sanity but if we understand that we are just this piece of life that my dad always reminds me with this privilege of knowing some sense some more sense about individuality, then we are easy to communicate with. Not only like these beautiful people right here in this room, but feeling that oneness, that one big one love, the universe, the uni unification with our souls and the outer cosmos, because that's what yoga literally means. It means union. I think the more we are aware of that, like always weeds do take place. So for me, coming into these rooms, being with these beautiful people over here, my brothers and sisters, it's weeding out, weeding out and those gentle reminders that serve me to help me in my role of being a parent, a leader in my business, whatever it is. Because in my opinion, yes, people have walked the path and they have also laid the rules, the ground, but then there's always, always more to learn. We can continue to keep growing. That's my humble take on this. This is more with those energy circles around. And Thank you, Mo. And, and you can tell by the communication style of Mo, the energy she gives off. <laughs> it, it's true, though. You, you feel it. And that's where you have to still be in tune with that emotional intelligence. And in, in, that's why the power of social audio is so strong. The second to meeting someone, you can tell so much about a person by, the, by their voice. Thank you, Mo. Eric, over to you. It's great to see everybody. The, the topic here to me is just so critically important. It brings me to the thought of where we, you talked about a couple of different things, just a few stepping stones and then a question I think I want to pr present back to the, to the moderators and to you guys. The straight talk piece, I thought I was very successful in, in straight talk. I found that self-reflecting, what I've realized my own style is. I'm not getting my point across or I'm not understanding the other person. It's in being effective and really connecting the way that I want to beyond whatever the effort might be that I'm talking about. Just being able to connect with other humans at a meaningful level. The storytelling Dr. Rowe touched back on there was right that the human race in recorded time, we're storytellers. We're, that's the only reason we have history is because we're storytellers. The different philosophies anchor to that. But here comes, I guess, my, my question to, to, to dial in. I was really moved by, by Paul there as well. Made me think of Chris Voss and the books that I have on my rotation around marketing and things, you know, never split the difference. 
But the it's more about for me, I come to spaces and I'm looking at them differently. People are not even seeing what I'm seeing. And I think part of that is in the in the caring enough to be listening better. Here's my question, because there's so much here to touch on. How how do we frame? How do we manage? How do we take actions around space and place that is only spiraling faster and faster, whether it be publicly, and it makes me think about the distrust distrust that you guys touched on, government, politics, business partners, et cetera. You know, and those are the things that seem to be the obvious, you know, blinking red lights. But how do we manage and to insulate? I get I don't know if I'm getting gonna get the right word, so I hope that that you'll tweak on my thought here a bit. To to insulate ourselves and allow us to move forward day in and day out so that my very emotional self that gives me the superpower that I have, along with a little bit of an ADHD, I think, so that we're not derailed, you know, and into these time-wasting distractions and, and what, what those can be in the wrong context with the wrong people that are just there for the drama or in the day-to-day where we are trying too hard where to let it go. I'm not connecting. I keep talking. I keep trying. And I'm making it worse when my intention is not that, but my intentions may not be the only thing that's important. How do we know when to let things go? It's a really good question. I see several people want to answer that. So I've got here Dr. Jen, then I've got Rhonda and Paul. Dr. Jen? Thank you so much, Johnny, and thank you everyone else for being here. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And there's so many good gold nuggets from, you know, obviously active listening and practicing and storytelling and knowing that it's not just the words, but it's the energy behind the words. It's the emotion we bring to the words. It's our own history with those words and our experiences in life that have an impact on the words that we choose to share and how we receive the energy and the meaning behind words from others. And all of the tips, I go back to something that Jacqueline was saying earlier as far as what are some practical tips because I always want to be able to take what I hear and then if it resonates, how do I apply it? And we touched on, of course, our physiology and our nervous system. As I think it was Paul who said, you know, being able to regulate our nervous system is key. And I believe that this is also an answer to Eric's question as far as with things picking up pace, getting faster and faster, as well as our connection through technology worldwide, we have to be able to be more responsive. And I choose responsive versus reactive. We want to be able to be versatile and flexible. And that goes back to being able to know ourselves, understand ourselves, in relation to how does our body respond to all of this and being able to train our nervous system, train our body to be able to respond in a way that is supportive of us. I know with a lot of the work that I've done for myself personally and with the clients and patients that I work with, many people are operating, especially when it's moving so fast, in survival mode. And they're making decisions from survival mode. And they're wondering why they're not getting the results that they crave, that they're striving for, they're working really hard for. And it goes back in a lot of cases to that. So to bring it around to practical, 
all of the tips that have been shared, for me, it goes back to, it starts and ends with me. Yes, we want to actively listen. But before we can really, in my opinion, actively listen well to others, we have to be able to actively listen to ourselves. Whether that's through journaling, or I do like what I call sessions with myself, or meditation, or some other method of being able to know what my own inner wisdom has to say, not just looking to share information with others or even hear information from others, because I have so much wisdom that if I'm anything like others, I was taught to ignore from a very young age. It's always, you know, get the answers from experts or adults or somebody outside of myself. And where I've noticed a significant shift and change for my own healing and being able to guide and support others is that piece. It starts and ends with me first and foremost. And then I can, again, straight talk. If I'm having a straight talk with myself, then I'm more able to have straight talk with others. And I've found that that is what has probably been my biggest, well, gift to myself. The second thing is to give myself space. That, again, with so much technology, so much information out there, we're bombarded. I mean, we can fill literally every moment of our waking day with Clubhouse, with podcasts, with reading, with just information coming in. But when that happens, then we, at least for a lot of people that I know and myself, we end up in our mind, we're thinking, but there's so much more information that we can gather that comes through our body and that we don't recognize or that comes in other ways in relation to all of it together that we miss out when we're filling our moments with, and I'll say noise. Rhonda, are you there? I am here. Great to see you, Johnny. I love Eric's questions. And, and I think that practically speaking, along with everything else that has been shared by everyone, there are a couple of things that we can do. Number one, I think to be mindful that we tell stories in so many ways. And I think someone else alluded to this. So telling story is not just the conveyance of a message verbally, even by tone or body language. It's also how we show up on a regular basis. Part of the work that I do is around empathy communication and our ability to convey empathy. And I think this speaks to some of Eric's questions. Our ability to convey empathy is can be as simple as I hear you. We're not quite in the same uh, realm in terms of our opinions, but I, but I still hear you and I get you and it's okay that we're not connecting right now. It's okay. And I still care about you and I'm going to continue to convey that message. So storytelling, a part of that for me is how we show up and how we're showing up in spaces. And that tells a story in and of itself that becomes open and inviting for other humans to contribute. The other thing I, I really love to think about is building on what Jen says about communication. And that is to really be in tune with yourself and bring conscious and intention to the communication. So when I'm in the clubhouse room, I'll ask myself this question. Why am I here? What, what is it I'm hoping to get from this conversation. So that's when I go into the room. And then after that, I do a check-in. 
Am I getting that? How am I feeling? Do I feel like this is a valuable conversation that is serving me or where I am in service of others? Right. And so I do that regularly, particularly in spaces like Instagram, Clubhouse, and it'll pull me back. I've done it where I start asking that question and I say, no, not right now. This is not the time for me to be here. So that's my little self check that I use practically. And then the last thing, and I'll end with this. I teach a technique called outcomes-based communication. Feedback is 365 all around us. So one of the ways that I become a bit of a communication chameleon is by seeing my audience, hearing my audience, and understanding them. Based on the feedback that they're giving me, I begin to adjust a bit. Perfect example, I'm doing a workshop tomorrow in Cherokee, Iowa. I've got to dial in to that audience. I've got to see what is my feedback because based on that, I can continue down my way of communicating, which might be straight talk or whatever else we might want to call it. But if that's not working, that's where we go to outcomes-based communication. What's the outcome that you're hoping to achieve? And then who do you need to be as a communicator in order to get there? Thank you so much. I love that perspective. And that's what we're talking about, some tips and guidance as well as uh, pointers. I'm going to go to Paul and then I'm going to bring into the conversation Sirhab who founded the Human Behaviour Club which reached 700,000 members everybody. Paul over to you. Thank you so much and congratulations Ohib what a wonderful accomplishment that is. I really applaud you. Wow this is a topic the Eric question is a topic that needs unpacking but it could take hours to unpack because there are so many different levels to it. I'm just going to add a few things. I think that in this society especially today we are taking things far too personally. When something is said to us we internalize it, we become emotional over it and we allow what's being said to us to really take over. In my acting career, when I first went out to do some auditions or whatever, and I was rejected for whatever reason, and and just imagine dating when you're told, no, I don't wanna see you for the second date. We all take that personally, and then we start putting ourselves down. With all the information that's going on out there, we, we tend to do the same thing. If people don't think our way, we might take it personally. And why do we do that? One of the reasons that we do that is we don't think critically. We don't access that critical thinking component that is available to each and every one of us. Sometimes we have to question what's being said to us. Sometimes we have to reflect and we have to ask questions. Where is this information coming from? Or why do you feel that way? And why are we taking things so personally? Two people standing in front of me, one is a complete stranger, looks at me and says, you're a dirty, ugly, no good for nothing loser. And I'm going to look at that person and go, well, thanks for your opinion, but everybody's entitled to it. Thanks very much. Then I have my daughter saying the same thing. Now I have a choice. I have a choice to react or respond. And the problem is so many of us are prepared to react and not respond. Viktor Frankl, who wrote that beautiful uh, book, Man's Search for Meaning, was in the midst of one of the worst uh, situations one can imagine. He was in a concentration camp, but he made some observations, pardon me, and one of the observations he made, this quote uh, has been one that's been used over and over again because it's worth repeating. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. The problem is many of us are first reactors. We're not first responders. 
Imagine an ambulance crew going to a scene of an accident, jumping out and reacting. Oh my God, this is so terrible. Look at all the blood. What are we going to do? Get back in the truck. Let's leave. And that's what they would do. No, what we want are first responders. The, the professionals who jump out, look at the scene and say, we've got this. We know how to handle this. We have to be our first responders when it comes to communication out there. We can't accept everything on face value and we can't take everything so personally. We have to ask questions. We have to address the white elephants that come up in the room. That is an emotion that changes. We have to be so positive in ourselves that we are capable of holding on to a good communication and making it even better or turning a bad one into a good one because we're able to. And Johnny, you said this earlier, and it's so true. You can learn to become a good communicator. But first, I would encourage everybody to look into critical thinking. There's a book by Scott Lovell out there on critical thinking. It's worth reading, and we have to question the things that come up. We can't take things so personally anymore. We just have to remember that our voice is as important as everybody else's voice out there. Thanks, Paul. Johnny, I was just going to add two seconds. Yeah, go ahead, Rhonda. I just wanted to add to Paul. So, Paul, I love the analogy of the responders. As a clinician myself, I would just add this piece that even first responders were taught to respond. And I feel like that's a bit of where we're missing the boat here is that early enough, we don't teach each other how to respond. And so then we go into automatic reaction mode. Words have power and communications. How does that play out in the health sector? Excellent question, Johnny. So communication and health is actually when I the med school I went to, communication was kind of the focal point of our teaching, even more so than actually learning the physiology and anatomy itself. Because when you're communicating with patients, the ultimate thing is how they leave feeling your room. And they have to have understood, A, what you've told them, often in a situation where you're telling them about a treatment or a disease. So it can be a situation in which they're fearful, so you have to understand they may not be completely listening to or comprehending what you're saying because of those emotions, it becomes essential that healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses are really good communicators. Because if you have to deliver bad news, for example, you want to be able to hear that in a way that isn't as conducive to you being traumatized in that sense, because no one wants to hear they have a certain condition, A, B, or C. But a master communicator can really help make that person feel comfortable in that scenario and be there to support them. So when they do go through those changes in feelings, when they hear such news, they can help to kind of bounce back or have some type of hope. Words are very powerful when it comes to healthcare. And when you are seeing healthcare professionals, you'll see them use a lot of different techniques. We have whole frameworks for things like breaking bad news, for example, and that we learn. And essentially what they do is they help make people feel more comfortable. But Johnny, in terms of health messaging, more kind of broadly speaking, there's a lot of kind of behavioral economics that go into kind of health messaging from kind of a more, you know, a public sense, or if you're looking at agencies, looking at health products, for example, or campaigns, if it's like five a day, fruit and veg, or thighs, and a lot of behavior. In the UK, they use the nudge theory, and the nudge theory was kind of coined by Taylor. You can read his books, The Father of Behavioral Economics. And essentially what nudge theory does, it uses these kind of you know, principles such as humans don't like loss, loss aversion, more than they like gain, hurt them more than gain. 
and also using other techniques, whole list of frameworks we would go into to kind of help people to be healthier. And they use in that the words become very important. What words you're highlighting, what kind of messaging you're using, what kind of strap lines you have. So essentially a lot of behavior change is down to the messaging. And actually what I'm working on now, I work as a medical advisor for a company called Havas and we're a health communications company. And everything we do, we're bringing, say, vaccines, pharma companies trying to bring vaccines or certain medications or even digital health apps to the population. It's very careful how we message that, brand that, and we bring that to the public. Because in, in, in markets of the UK, in the US, you can directly advertise to patients, for example. In the UK, we, we just want to raise awareness of certain conditions rare diseases or more common things like obesity or mental health. And literally it's all down to the words you use to be able to tell someone or inform them, but also persuade them to take certain actions, which may be beneficial for the health. So Johnny, very powerful in health. And it is so powerful. You hear all of these campaigns, even famous celebrities like Jamie Oliver that came in and did that health campaign with school dinners, raising the awareness there. And all these campaigns around sugar comes through effective communications. It, it, it really does. It's such an important aspect. Do you think, Sahab, that the health sector or say the NHS, which is our national health service uh, here in the UK for our American cousins, do you think they've embraced technology when it comes to communications effectively and have now understood the importance of that, like social media, digital communicating? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And I think Health is way, way behind. I mean, we use fax machines and... Snapchat, talk, various communication channels. I mean, so your audience essentially is not on the traditional advertising or messaging has been. Now we're all online, right? The internet has evolved. Even when we're thinking of things like Web3, the metaverse, it's so far ahead of where current health messaging is anyway, gauge and activate certain population. And to get that right, you have to be hitting these new channels. And surprisingly, when I started at the health agency, like being one of the, the younger people, I guess, just having just turned 30 recently, aware of how well, for example, t doctors on TikTok were doing or on new social media channels were doing. So I've kind of brought that to the team. And the engagement is just so much higher with an online audience when you're kind of adaptive pretty quickly because tech moves pretty quickly. I mean, we have so many new platforms coming out every single day. And definitely here in the UK, that is just definitely not adapted that. Hopefully we move towards that. I think the wing, et cetera. And more broadly in America as well. I know California is looking valley, but does it really penetrate through to the rest of the, the uh, country or states? I'm not too sure. But yeah. For health, now we are seeing a surge of kind of consumer health companies and we are seeing people taking care of their more their health and being aware of what their numbers mean when it comes to like glucose, when it comes to kind of heart rate. And I guess companies like Whoop and Aixley, the ones I work with, really are helping that happen. They're a bit pricey right now, but hopefully over time, as we know with technology, uh, we have that curve where things get democratized and the price comes rapidly down after five to 10 years. So hopefully we move towards that and, and yeah, definitely a need for change there. Thank you for your insights. Really, really enjoyed that. I'm going to move on to Robert, my, my great friend and, and someone where we're trying to change the world of recruitment and careers and end career misery. 85% of people are unhappy in their jobs and creating a community where you're in the top 15%. Hence the Recruitment and Careers Club podcast. Hence the Recruitment and Careers newsletter that we've got on LinkedIn. But I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to be greedy here, Rob. First question is, 
I've asked about the health sector. What about the legal sector and communications? How in tune are they with the latest modes of communications and where they're at and your observation? Because Robert is the most followed legal recruiter in the world in terms of recruitment and a content creator. So I'd love to hear your insights on that. And then I'm going to ask a second question cheekily afterwards. Are you there, Rob? Well, thank you very much for the for the kind introduction, Johnny. I think you're right. As, as you mentioned, I do a lot of work with, with, with lawyers. And lawyers are fantastic at one thing, which is knowing the law. And this is not necessarily every lawyer, but sometimes the delivery of that can perhaps not be in the best way to the recipients of that. I've been on the receiving end myself, Johnny, you know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of corporate lawyers for, for corporate transactions. And I think some of the communication that they use is, is legalese. And I think the art of really successful communication is actually being able to showcase your knowledge, but in very simplistic form so the end receiver can receive that message and understand it very, very clearly. So I think lawyers are still behind the curve with that in the delivery of their legal services. I still feel like sometimes they overcomplicate in a way to perhaps shine that they are these experts and thought leaders that they are. And of course, that's wonderful. You want to put your trust and and know that you have the best legal representation in whichever services you're looking to instruct. But I think sometimes they forget that the average person on the street who's not legally qualified, who doesn't understand all the technicalities, needs to understand just the basic nuances of what the legal languages is so they can make more informed decisions. I know a lot of frustrations from clients is, I just wish I could get a simple understanding of what that clause means so then I can be best advised. I still think there's a way to go with the legal profession to really get up to speed with that. There is a lot of tech that is emerging now, Johnny. There's things called One NDA and various AI and algorithms and various things that are coming through, not at the speed of the likes of the fintech world, which you're well accustomed to. But I do hope it will improve because I think one thing I'm passionate about is more access to justice generally. And it's something we talk a lot about on the Legally Speaking podcast and what more we can do to give access to people to more professional um, support and legal services. And secondly, is making sure that people really understand the legal representations and, and the clauses that are being sort of put into these contracts so they know what they're getting into. Because I can tell you, probably 95% of shareholders' disputes happen because most of them were not aware of some of the clauses that actually went into those uh, contracts. I did in terms of the breakdown, and I agree with you, I, I've done a law degree myself, but the law and some of the terminologies here in the UK as well with all the Latin terms, it could be better communicated to the layperson. My second question, do you think nowadays, in order to climb the career ladder or become an effective entrepreneur, because I've said this before, the traditional employee model is dying, you're either going to be an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, that you have to be a great communicator and someone who gets social media and digital channels of communications? What's your thoughts? Yeah, it's such a good question, Johnny. I, I definitely think the communication piece is, is, is a big one, but I believe an even bigger piece is the ability to listen and take action on that because it's great being a wonderful skilled communicator and being able to articulate but we all need to grow develop through feedback through social listening and i think the ability to really listen observe and absorb and then take 
action is where people fall foul. I think very lots of people are skilled communicators, which is wonderful. And yes, you need to have a digital presence. But how many times maybe have you been trying to post things or you've been trying to communicate and you haven't perhaps got the responses or the audiences or the feedback you had hoped for because maybe you haven't quite listened to your audience or you thought you had listened, but you hadn't really deeply listened. I think that's one of the key skill sets in our industry, Johnny, about consulting and trying to match make and make sure people secure the dream jobs. You know, we really need to listen to what the needs and requirements are of the individuals as well as the employers. So communication, absolutely. But moreover, listening is probably the number one thing for me. Yeah, great, great points. And like I've said before, you know, take actions. The riches are in the follow throughs and you never know you're one step away, one relationship away to changing your life. It really is as simple as that. It could be a new friend, a new collaborator, it could be a new partner, could be a new employer, could be a new employee. So really do take action. One of the most important aspects when it comes to communications is emotional control. I've spoken about it earlier in the room. Feelings play an important role. Making decisions more often affects the way you feel than the way you think. You need to take responsibility and start communications. Do not wait and expect another person to do so. And don't hide behind various forms of online communication. So good communication, especially on important topics, requires far more, far more than what we can express in a written message. It's called being prepared about what you're going to say. Try to structure it, try to articulate, facilitate the conversation. It's important. It begins with you. And you need to remember that. And I'm going to go to Rob with this next point. Go ahead. When I was 34 years old, Johnny, I thought I knew everything about building relationships and business until I hosted one of the world's best Facebook marketing experts on my podcast. My guest, he was wearing a black top with the Facebook marketing logo on it, sitting in his penthouse suite in Las Vegas, Nevada. Amazing views across the boulevard. The sun was shining on the recording day. And he shared with me the best piece of knowledge, which I have never forgotten when it comes to today's discussion, which is what I already said, actually, Johnny, from the outset, when I was. Remember those three words, state them with enthusiasm, and you'll make some strong headway when it comes to storytelling. That's all I wanted to say. It's such a powerful point, isn't it? Such a such a great way to do that messaging in what you just said. I'm going to just end off with saying that basically we need to just be ready for different answers when it comes to communications. So as you formulate maybe a speech, maybe a presentation, you need to put yourself in the position of a person who's going to be listening to you. What does that ensure? That ensures a balanced approach and you'll be prepared to learn and then defend potential disagreements because we can't always agree. It's not human nature. It really isn't. And it'll be easier for you to defend your standpoint. No one can predict it, but you need to be prepared, ready for different answers. And sometimes in life, I remember my boss once said, and I used to be quite hot-headed in my younger days, Johnny, just choose your battles. Choose your battles. You don't always have to go to war. And sometimes we have to realize that when it comes to communications. We have to keep our emotions in control, try to put ourselves in the position of others. It's hard because we're human first, but we need to choose our battles. 
when it comes to communications because sometimes that knee-jerk reaction is the worst reaction. Johnny, one, one thing I would just say is, is practice makes perfect. You know, n none of us are unfortunately perfect, but by taking more action, really trying to implement some of the things that you've heard today, you'll definitely take some steps forward in terms of improving communication and storytelling. So just wanted to really stress that point. And I know it's something you're super passionate about, Johnny, as well. You're right, Rob. You know, just don't be afraid to ask for help in anything in life. You know, sometimes pride can sabotage success. And if you want to work on things like communications or storytelling, don't be afraid to ask. But in order to ask, you need to do the follow through. You need to develop the relationship. You need to take it offline. My friend, listening to you today has been stellar. Just wanted to add a couple of things to the conversation here because uh, it's been so rich. We really do have the ability to communicate well but it takes work for some of us who may not have the skills. But as Johnny said earlier, we can develop those skills. We can learn how to be good communicators. We've heard about the importance of choosing our words, of using the tone of our voice, our body language, and also the importance of active listening. Because active listening is not a passive act. It takes work. Here's something I would like to, to leave the floor with is that Sidney Poitier wrote this book, I think it's called The Measure of a Man. And in it, he says, when two people to get together and start to walk, one of them sets the pace that they will walk at. So be the person who sets the pace in your communication. By that, I mean, set the tone. If you are a speaker, bring in the energy that you want to see in that room. If you're a public speaker, bring in that energy that you want the whole room to light up with. And just remember, too, to understand your, your audience and to really put yourself in the shoes of your audience, especially if it is a situation in which you're, you're doing a business deal or it's an intimate or personal situation. Imagine what that person must be going through, what they must be thinking, and then shift the, the conversation that way. Don't be afraid to open up and just ask questions, as was said before, too. The importance of exploratory dialogue and not making assumptions is so vital to effective communication. Johnny, thank you so much. Robert, what a great share. Sohab, thank you so much. And everybody else here who has been contributors, I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you, Paul. You, the audience, you know, without this, none of, none of social audio can happen. So never take you for granted. Always appreciate you.